Welcome to Peak Flow, where we, Team Human, play with purpose. I'm Dr. Rob Williams, and with us in the Peak Flow Mad River Valley studio today, all the way from Ireland, incredibly lucky to have with us our special guest, Patrick McCune. Patrick, welcome. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much, Rob. Well, thanks for making time. You're a busy guy. It is. Today has been busy. Um, <laughs> breathing. Breathing is one of those things that was a slow burner for about 15 years, up until about 2015. And since then, it's really taken off. Yes. And I've noticed the last year, 2020, has pushed it again. Yes. So without further ado, I just want to mention um, one of your uh, websites, oxygenadvantage.com, where humans can go and learn all kinds of stuff about the importance of breathing. Can you, before we get into Oxygen Advantage OA, Patrick, can you just nutshell for us a bit about yourself? Who are you and how did you come to where you are right now? I know that's a big question, but you've had an interesting journey. Yeah, I came across by accident. I would never have chosen breathing as a career path. My background was economics. And when I was growing up as a kid, I had asthma into my teenage years and into my university years. But if you have asthma, you don't just have asthma. I also had a very stuffy nose. I was a chronic mouth breather and I had terrible sleep. And when I, when I was at university, I was staying in student dorms. Students told me the following days that they would hear me snoring and then I would stop breathing. And I didn't realize it's time, but back then I had obstructive sleep apnea. But for me to get my grades, it, it took a lot of work because you don't have a concentration, you don't have a tension span and your head is just not in it. And, you know, I got my grades, but it took a lot of work, took a lot of effort. And then it was back in 1997 or eight, I read a newspaper article about the work of a Russian doctor, Konstantin Buteko. And he spoke about two things. He said, breathing should be light and breathing should be through the nose. I was doing neither of those things. So that day I practiced his exercise to decongest my nose and it worked. And I knew there was something in it. And I, I struggled in terms of making, going from mouth to nose breathing I, because I felt air hunger in the first few days because I suppose I had a couple of decades of mouth breathing, chronic mouth breathing and switched to nasal breathing. I taped my mouth the first night. I taped it again the second night. I pretty much taped it every night since. But it was the second morning waking up and it was the best night's sleep that I had in about 15 years. So I left the corporate world after about two years and I just had a good instinct or a feeling that I'd love to be teaching this stuff. And that's when I contacted the Russian embassy and as a result, I went to Russia and I've been teaching now full time since 2002. So, yeah, so sometimes uh, career paths, it's amazing how life kind of directs us in a certain direction if we're listening to it. So you've been doing this 20 years after mm -hmm. essentially using your own body and breath as a laboratory. Yeah, but see, this gave me a really good confidence because I knew it worked and I knew mm. the personal journey of myself and I knew the years of wheezing and chest tightness. And, you know, so even if somebody was to tell me, well, you know, what you're saying is wrong, but that couldn't be the case. And I wasn't the only one I've worked in because I actually was working then. Early on, I focused mainly on people with asthma because that was the only condition that I kind of knew from an experiential level. But I was seeing results, continuous and persistent results, or you know, being able to reproduce results. And of course, nothing is ever 100%. 
it's dependent on you know the person putting it into practice and the person being aware of their breathing but overall we've seen really really wonderful results and quick results and from there then i went from asthma then into sleep disorder breathing and then from working with that into anxiety and panic disorder and then from that into sports performance and we still work now in all four so about from the health perspective about 30 percent is asthma 30 percent is sleep 30 percent is anxiety and then on the other side then sports performance then is it, it's quite a few you know it's, it's quite busy as well so talk about the mission of Oxygen Advantage as an organization. Mm. What, are you, what are you all about? So back in 2010, I was giving courses because there was a, an economic crash here and there was a lot of anxiety and nobody had much money, you know. So I was giving these very simple two-hour courses for people with, with anxiety and panic. And I had about 3,000 people attend over the course of three years from 2010 to 2013, but 90% of them, or even more, 95% were females that attended, and men weren't turning up. And Oxygen Advantage was, I wanted a breathing technique that was performance-based. And I wanted, so men, for example, would come in to improve their sports performance, to delay lactic acid, giving them breath holding, and getting them to feel it, because I think there's an awful lot of negative negativity about breathing. And there's a lot of nonsense out there as well. And if you, like, for instance, if I was working with a rugby team, I'll push these guys through their paces and they will know well because they will feel it. And they know then there's something in it. So Oxygen Advantages was about bringing breathing to a high performance setting. But with that as well, we did bring in focus and concentration. And not necessarily to call it mindfulness because I often feel that mindfulness, Rob, even though it's wonderful, what I found was between 2010 and 2013 that the group of people who needed mindfulness the most could not do it. The people who were coming in with such high stress, with panic disorder, with respiratory physiology that was involving dysfunctional breathing, fast upper chest breathing, and their sleep was not good. And here you have a group of people that may then be trying to practice mindfulness. And when the mind is all over the place, how can you focus on your breathing? When your sleep is all over the place, how can you focus on mindfulness? You can't. So I'm writing a new book. And this is probably because of a hobby more so. So this is one that I'm doing for fun. Um, it's about improving concentration and attention. And the reason being is because it goes back to myself as a young kid in that school. I was falling asleep in, asleep in secondary school. And I had school teachers who were giving out to me and telling me that I'd be pretty much good for nothing except for picking potatoes out in the field. And that was one teacher who told me that, you know, one Irish man telling another young kid in school that you're good for nothing, you should be out picking potatoes because I didn't have the energy and concentration. But 25 to 50% of the studied childhood population are in that same boat. And healthcare professionals, unfortunately, have overlooked this one. And they have overlooked it because it's not just with society. If you think of the traits that we need to succeed as human beings, whether it's the school or whether it's the workplace or whether it's the corporate environment, whether it's sports, we need that capacity to be able to hold our attention of what we need to do. But we also need attention span. And that's the length of time that we can hold our attention there. But if we have poor sleep and if we have poor breathing, 
we neither have concentration nor attention span. And with that then, kids who were doing, you know, they have difficulty trying to achieve academically. We know that children with sleep disorder breathing, they have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. We know that the risk in burnout in the corporate industry is so high as well. And I was in the corporate industry and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I hated going in, I hated the stress, I hated looking after employees. And maybe it wasn't the company I was working for. It was me because I was in that state that I was highly strung, that I was all over the place. And when your mind is racing, you're not going to focus on anything. And I didn't have anxiety. I never considered myself having anxiety, but I didn't have concentration and I didn't have energy. And I'm nearly 50 years of age now. My concentration now is better than what it was when I was 16. And these, you know, society is demanding that we can concentrate, but nobody is teaching us how. <clears throat> and mindfulness is not sufficient. You can do all the mindfulness in the world, but if you have poor sleep and poor breathing, it's not going to do it. And mindfulness was developed two and a half thousand years ago. People live differently then. Breathing pattern disorders now are more of a problem. And I know this is, I think, part of the problem as well with breathing. We are taught according to tradition. And for me, when I learned Buteco, and it's a wonderful method, but it's very much centered on the biochemistry. So, and I can't change the Buteco method because who am I to change it? But with Oxygen Advantage, it gave me the freedom to explore breathing from many different perspectives. And now with Oxygen Advantage, we use 26 different exercises. In comparison with Buteco, we use six, we use seven. It's still a wonderful method, but when breathing is taught, it's normally taught according to traditions. The physiotherapist, they learn breathing according to their tradition. The yoga instructor is learning breathing according to their guru. The Pilates instructor the same. Heart mass or heart rate variability the same. Buteco the same, but nobody is embracing all. And that's where, you know, that aspect I think is very important because we cannot just look at breathing from one dimension. We have to look at the interplay between the biochemistry, the biomechanics, and also slowing down breathing to stimulate the vagus nerve, to strengthen the bowel reflex, to influence the autonomic nervous system. And the other thing that I'd say is the bidirectional relationship between functions of the human body. If we look at breathing and we look at the interconnectedness between breathing and sleep, if our breathing is fast and shallow, we are more likely to be aroused from sleep. We're more likely, if we're mouth breathing, to have sleep disorder breathing, including snoring and sleep apnea. If we have poor sleep, we're more likely to have mental health issues. So people coming into me over the years with depression, and I would ask them, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And they, they often say that they wake up and they feel absolutely dreadful. <clears throat> and then if I was to say to them, well, has anybody asked you about your sleep quality? And they say no. And I think it's because the healthcare professional is thinking that the person is depressed and it's depression which is causing exhaustion. But maybe we have to be looking at the other way around. This person may have sleep apnea and when sleep apnea and insomnia go together, it increases the risk of depression. So it's exhaustion which is contributing to, to depression. Mental health issues will impact your sleep. Sleep impacts your mental health. Mental health issues impacts your breathing and breathing impacts your mental health. 
So again, we can't just look at breathing in isolation, but we need to consider the mind and we need to consider sleep. So let's start with sleep. Um, and yes. you mentioned that uh, taping the mouth at night, and I want to unpack yes. that. But, but before we do, can you nutshell for us, what does healthy breathing look like in a nutshell? And then let's and then take us to bed and let's start with sleep and healthy breathing. Sure. Yeah, I suppose healthy breathing is effortless. You know, that's it in a nutshell. Um, it's in and out through the nose. If we think of the human being, if we ask the question, what function does the mouth do in terms of breathing? Does the mouth have any function in terms of the breath? And the answer is no. The mouth is a hole and it's a hole whereby air can go down your throat and that's it. It doesn't regulate volume. It doesn't warm the air. It doesn't moisten the air. It, you don't harness nasal nitric oxide. But mouth breathing is also activating the upper chest. Mouth breathing is faster breathing, so it can cause agitation of the mind. So mouth breathing is shallow breathing. It can impact the biomechanics. So mouth breathing is affecting mind and body. So good breathing patterns are in and out through the nose. They're light. So during rest, you shouldn't hear somebody breathing. And good breathing patterns are driven by the diaphragm. So that 80% of the movement during rest in around, you know, is driven low that the air is coming into the lower regions of the lungs because that's where the greatest concentration of blood flow is. And good breathing is regular. So for example, if somebody's coming into me with a lot of anxiety, typically they will have irregular breathing and they may be stopping breathing or they may be sighing and that's feeding into their, their mental health issue. So conversely, dysfunctional breathing is often through the mouth, not always, but often. Dysfunctional breathing is a faster respiratory rate and meaning that the respiratory rate may be greater than 14 breaths per minute. I know now the norm has increased that, you know, in the medical literature, if you're breathing more than 16 breaths per minute, it's considered too fast. But I would consider that 16 breaths per minute is too fast anyway. Mm. 14 breaths should be the norm. Um, good breathing, or sorry, dysfunctional breathing is when breathing is ir irregular and breathing is mainly from the upper chest and dysfunctional breathing is effortful. The person will often complain that they just feel they can't take a satisfying breath. So then if we were to look at breathing, like I remember when I started first slowing down and reducing the air that I was breathing. And the purpose here is to increase carbon dioxide in the blood. But my hands got warmer. And I never realized that the, the more air I breathed, the more my blood vessels constricted. And I had cold hands for many, many years. And cold hands are very common. And, you know, people don't probably put the connection together that the reason that your hands are cold can be related to how hard and fast you breathe. And not just cold hands, but cold feet and brain fog comes in there. And the taping of the mouth, um, even though, you know, Dr. Christian Guimano was a Stanford-based medical doctor and he was coined with coming up with the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. And he also developed the apnea hypopnea index, which is a measurement of sleep apnea severity. In the last five years of his life, he spoke about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing, both during wakefulness and sleep. And I think this is really important because here you have one of the founding fathers of sleep medicine talking about the importance of breathing through the nose. But if you were to buy 10 books on Amazon or anywhere, 
about sleep, you will hardly see nasal breathing being mentioned at all. And, you know, it's really strange because sleep hygiene, of course, makes sense. You know, have thermal regulation. Don't be too hot in bed. Have a quiet bedroom, a dark bedroom, an airy bedroom. Don't drink alcohol late at night. Don't be eating late at night. All good stuff. However, the elephant in the room is breathing in and out through the nose. And it's when we breathe through the nose, our sleep tends to be deeper. And nasal breathing allows the tongue to be resting in the roof of the mouth. And when the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth, the airway, the architecture of the airway is bigger. It's, it's wider. And as a result, there's less resistance to breathing. And really, I think we have to be thinking of the airway. It's a pipe, as it is. But we need to be considering it from the point of view of an engineer. An engineer who considers a pipe will not only consider the diameter of the pipe, but will also consider flow. At the moment when sleep medicine is investigating sleep disorder breathing, the focus is very much on the anatomy, on the diameter of the pipe. But there's very little focus on how that person is actually breathing. And it's their breathing during the day, which is influencing breathing during sleep and breathing during physical exercise. Now, sleep medicine has changed in the last seven years. So, for example, with obstructive sleep apnea, which is involving collapse of the upper airway during sleep so that the, the individual stops breathing. Only it, there's now recognition that there's four characteristics involved in sleep apnea, and only one of those is anatomical. So traditionally, sleep apnea was seen primarily as an anatomical issue. And one the characteristic that's anatomical is called PCRIT. And this is the suction pressure at which the airway collapses. We need the upper airway to be able to withstand a good suction pressure. But another characteristic is called loop gain. And loop gain really ties in with what we do. And aside from PCRIT, loop gain affects 30% of the sleep apnea population. And loop gain can be measured by using breath hold time. So for example, using the control pause from the buteco method. So individuals with a low breath hold time of less than 20 seconds, and especially if they have a breath hold time of between 10 and 15 seconds, that would indicate that they have high loop gain. Now, what that means is that if they stop breathing during sleep, as they stop breathing, oxygen is going to drop in the blood and carbon dioxide is going to increase because they've stopped breathing. But people with high loop gain have a strong sensitivity to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. And as they stop breathing, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. When they resume breathing, they resume breathing with such exaggerated ventilation. And what happens then is the exaggerated breathing blows off too much carbon dioxide, removes too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. Now they go from hypercapnic during the stopping of the breath to hypocapnic. And carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. So when the CO2 in the blood is too low, the brain doesn't send the signal to breathe. So it can initiate a central apnea. But also when the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe, the output from the brain to the upper airway dilator muscles is also reduced. So this then can contribute to an obstructive event. The interesting thing about loop gain that even though it affects 30% of people with sleep apnea, how do you address high loop gain? And you address high loop gain by normalizing minute ventilation and by reducing the chemosensitivity towards carbon dioxide. This is the buteco method. 
Now, the third phenotype is arousal threshold. An arousal threshold is the propensity to wake from sleep. Are you a light sleeper or are you a deep sleeper? Now, if we think of breathing, we know that fast and shallow breathing is more likely to arouse the person from sleep. We know also that mental health issues and a racing mind can con contribute to insomnia. So there's another, another phenotype that can be helped with, with breathing re-education. And the, the, the fourth phenotype is upper airway recruitment. When we think about lung volume and we think about breathing through the nose and the nose is engaging the diaphragm with optimal movement or optimal amplitude of the diaphragm, that when we breathe in during rest, the lower ribs should be moving out. And when we breathe out, the lower ribs should be moving in. When we breathe low, it increases lung volume. And when it increases lung volume, the throat is stiffer and less likely to collapse. Now, bearing in mind that 50% of the adult population persistently mouth-breathe, mouth-breathing is causing fast and upper chest breathing. Fast and upper chest breathing is reducing lung volume and the throat is more liable to collapse. So I wrote a review article <clears throat> with two with two ear, nose and throat doctors. My, my, my voice is getting quite a run today, so you have to excuse me. With two ear, nose and throat doctors, and we had it published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine about a month ago. And it's looking at the application of breathing re-education from three dimensions of breathing to the four phenotypes of sleep apnea. So it got published and it's a, it's a decent enough impact journal and it's, it's available on PubMed. And I suppose it untangles some of what people can be doing to help themselves. You know, we have to bear in mind that the current treatment of sleep medicine is in an adult population is with a CPAP machine. Many people cannot tolerate the CPAP. And as a result, then what do they have? Okay, mandibular advancement. But mandibular advancement will not address sleep apnea with people with high loop gain. And this is where, you know, with now the recognition that there are a number of traits within sleep apnea, it's very important that the treatment is tailored to the individual traits of the individual. So, for example, a person with high loop gain, their breathing needs to be addressed. A person with poor upper airway recruitment, their upper airway muscles need to be improved, the functioning of it. A person who is waking up due to insomnia, that needs to be looked at. So it's all changing, you know, and I really feel that breathing, and it, of course it's not a cure-all or anything like that, but there is something in it. And, and a, Well, we spend a third of our lives, Patrick, sleeping or, or yes. trying to sleep, and you've laid out for us the biomechanical, um, the biochemical, and, and I think what you call cadence, or sort of the, yes. the pace at which yes. we breathe as those three elements uh, times the four phenotypes, which you've just, just described. But you're, say, you're suggesting that we can actually begin to grapple with all of this if we simply put a small piece of tape over our mouth when we sleep at night to push us away from mouth breathing while we sleep or try to nose yeah, breathing. It's, it's very important. Like if we look at the literature, um, people over 40 years of age, they're six times more likely <clears throat> to spend at least 50% of their sleep time breathing through an open mouth. If I look at, at a paper that was published in Laryngoscope in May of 2020, looking at 95 individuals with established obstructive sleep apnea, out of the 95, only 35 of them were nasal breathers. 
their AHI was 27 events per hour, which is moderate to severe. I know it's not good, Mm. but the mouth breathing group, their AHI was 52 events per hour and the mouth nasal breathing group was 47 events per hour. So, you know, the other thing that I would like to show is I'd like to show that sometimes when people hear about taping the mouth, they're aghast. But <laughs> yes. there is a way to do it. Yes. And especially with children, we don't we don't tape across the lips with children. We we use this tape. Now, this is my own tape. And you know, this is just kinesio tape that's cut into strips and the glue has been altered. And it's a cotton tape. And the idea was was to try and solve an issue that we had. It was primarily, to be honest with you, with children. Because I was thinking to myself, you know, know, we were doing different things and we were putting strips down across the lips, et cetera, with kids. And we're saying, you know, this is not good. There's a perceived risk out there. So the myotape is we stretch it by about, say, 40%. And it surrounds the lips to bring the lips together. And it also is because of the, the bi-directional tension, it's helping to activate the muscles here, the orbicular sores muscle. <clears throat> but we used it also for training because young children, they, I would go through all the exercise with the kids and off they go. And I knew they could nose breed. They were running around the studio. I could even have them blocking my nostril. We were having them do breath holds. They could do it. They go home, they come back in a week later mouth is hanging open again. So then we go through the whole thing again. What's your nose for? What's this? Here are the exercises. All the time going through it again. Off a week later and they come back in and some of the kids again, the mouth is open. And four years ago, I said to every parent coming in, we want to focus on addressing the obstruction of the nose with, with the child. We were doing that anyway. But we have to place more emphasis on changing the behavior. And bef- I wasn't doing that. And the biggest thing that we did was introduce taping during the day, especially when the child was distracted. Ah. So if a child was watching television and this is to change the behavior, but then the kids kept on ripping the tape off during the day if they wanted to talk (laughs) or if they wanted to take a drink and kids are kids. So that's when the myotape come in as this training tool. So anytime that if the kid was wearing the tape, if they forgot to breathe through their nose, as soon as they open the mouth, the tape brought the lips together and it had that connection. So instead of the parent having to say to the child, lips together, lips together, lips together, which sometimes parents, it was like a broken record and it was generating tension that now the tape was doing the work. And then we felt a lot more comfortable then with children during sleep. Once they could establish nasal breathing during wakefulness, then was to use the tape during sleep. Wow. And it, it was a game changer. Yeah. It, was, it was just something important and it kind of grew out of frustration. And like some kids did switch to nose breathing pretty quickly, but some kids didn't. So you can pursue corrective breathing from two angles. One is during sleep, but, but the other now with this tape, and especially with kids, is during wakefulness. That, that's, that's very interesting. Yes. Well, so let's bring it around. Let's bring oxygen advantage around to fitness and performance and athleticism. And I, I wondered if you could briefly describe three different protocols that uh, you teach that I've been immersed in, and as have many. The first, I think, would be the BOLT. Can you just describe yes. the nature of the BOLT? B, and this is an acronym, B-O-L-T, or, BOLT. Yeah. yeah, so the BOLT stands for Body Oxygen Level Test. It's it's the control pause from the butego method, but we felt we just 
the control pause didn't have any kind of significance. So we had to, you know, just change the name. Um, but basically it's an indicator or a screening tool for breathing pattern disorders. And in a recent paper that was published by Kyle Kiesel, who is professor of physical therapy in the United States. And he looked at 51 individuals and he looked at their breathing from different dimensions. He concluded that if the bowl score or control pause exactly as, as he looked at, if it's above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that this functional breathing is not present. So this is really good because now it's taken into the universities and they've, they've studied it as opposed to just being a measurement that we've been using as breathing instructors. And the significance of this is that if somebody has a low breath hold time, a low bolt score, they typically have faster and upper chest breathing. That's all it is. They typically have faster and upper chest breathing. It's not necessarily correlated with lower CO2. It can indicate that, you know, there are some papers showing that breath hold time does give you some indicator of CO2 sensitivity. And a person who does have a low breath hold time, they're breathing a little bit faster and a little bit upper chest during rest. And this also will translate into faster and upper chest breathing during exercise. And faster and upper chest breathing during exercise is inefficient. It's uneconomical. And also the athlete is more likely to gas out too soon. So whenever you'd see an athlete that they're really pushing and struggling and they're, they have excessive breathlessness, that's not necessarily due to poor condition, but that can be a breathing pattern disorder that that athlete has. And unfortunately in the sports world, this has been overlooked. And because if we look at breathing pattern disorders in the normal population, in the anxiety population, it's between 75 to 80% of that population. Now, there, are, there is in sports and in any walk of life, a fraction or percentage of those individuals have anxiety. And in sports and any walk of life, a fraction of individuals have asthma and people with asthma also are more prone to breathing pattern disorders. So here is an athlete that can be pushing themselves, they're training hard, but they find that they're plateauing, they find that they did de decondition early. And I think this is very important that it's being looked at. And I suppose, Rob, not just even looking at breathing pattern disorders during wakefulness, but looking at in terms of sleep, in terms of focus and looking at their breathing from a biochemical point of view. So another professor from Colorado State University, Professor George Dallam, he got 10 recreational athletes. You've probably come across his work. Yes. And he got them to breathe exclusively through their nose for six months. And he measured their performance at the end of six months. And they were able to achieve 100% of their work rate intensity with nasal breathing in comparison to mouth breathing, but they had 22% less ventilation. So there's an economical saving there. And it's surprising in a way that sports scientists have not investigated this more because when it comes down to breathing through the mouth, the mouth just doesn't do anything. All It's easier, of course it's easier, but you know, I've spoken with so many athletes over the years and you know, the recovery is much better. And in terms of lactic acid, et cetera, you know, in terms of performance, yes, for the first four to six weeks, when you do your physical exercise with the mouth closed, it's taxing. And it's taxing based on a couple of things. One is your bolt score. If you've got a low bolt score, 
you're going to find it more difficult switching to nasal breathing because your breathlessness for a given amount of physical exercise is going to be higher. And the second thing that impacts your ability to breathe through your nose during exercise is the size of your nasal airway. So for example, somebody like me, I have a very compromised nasal airway. One nostril is smaller than the other. So we use nasal dilators. So we use little plastic devices that we put into the nose, which is based on the cotton maneuver, just to help open up the airway, but also to prevent nasal valve collapse. So you can imagine somebody going for a run and their breathing is that bit harder and the suction as air is taken into the, into the nose can cause the valve, the nose to collapse. So, so we do that, but I, you know, I think it's for, for, especially for recreational athletes to bear in mind that if you do your physical exercise with the mouth closed, initially it's more difficult because the air hunger is higher. But the stronger air hunger is telling you that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And as carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood, your blood vessels are dilating, but also there's increased oxygen delivery to working muscles. So you stay aerobically for longer. And also the fraction of expired oxygen is less with nasal breathing during exercise than mouth breathing. But also if we think of the other thing, nasal breathing is connected with greater amplitude of the diaphragm. And when we have optimal movement of the diaphragm, it helps to increase the zone of opposition. And that in turn is influencing intra-abdominal pressure. So the diaphragm breathing muscle is not just for respiration, but also to provide stabilization of the spine. And functional breathing and functional movement go together. So an athlete with functional breathing will have, will have a greater tendency towards functional movement. And an athlete with functional movement has reduced risk of injury. And there's a few other things, you know, switching from mouth to nose breathing. When you breathe through your nose during physical exercise, there is an increased resistance to your breath. So it's adding an extra load onto the breathing muscles. And this is helping to improve respiratory muscle strength. And back in 1988, when researcher Swift, with patients who had their, their jaws wired shut post-jaw surgery, when they were forced to breathe exclusively through the nose, the PO2 in the blood increased by 10%. So... You know, I just see it as a no-brainer. And I think of even people with exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. So you've got athletes who are going on maybe a 50-mile cycle, and they come back, and they've been mouth-breathing for the entire 50 miles. Their mouth is dried out. Their throat is dried out. There's moisture sucked out of the airways. Their lungs are inflamed. They've got cyclist cough. They're more prone to upper respiratory issues. You know... Nasal breathing is the only organ in the human body that's helping to protect the lower airways and mouth breathing is trauma. And what you've done with the BOLT, the body <laughs> oxygen level test, is the most simple and elemental test, but so powerful because you can do it daily, you can do it several times a day, you can track your progress. And in the OA method, you give a very clear uh, set of parameters for uh, increased performance through increased nose breathing over time. It's it's very again it's very powerful. Uh, can, can you talk about the second uh, diagnostic, which is the MBT, the maximum breathlessness test, as a parallel mm -hmm. to Bolt? See, the Bolt score is you're holding the breath until the first physiological reaction to breathe, and it's more of a measure of the onset and endurance of breathlessness. So how quickly do you get breathless and how, 
how hard are you breathing across a given level of exercise? The maximum breathlessness test is measuring the, the maximum upper tolerance of breathlessness. So say, for example, if you have a sprinter or even somebody in, in sports, team sports. So team sports, one performance indicator would be reputed sprint ability. And this is the athlete's ability that it's all out effort. And then they've got a very brief recovery before it's all out effort again. So the MBT is measuring what's the total maximum tolerance of that person's breathlessness. And this is not suitable if somebody is pregnant or if they've got serious medical conditions. It's really reserved for people who are healthy and people, you know, kids, teenagers. If you have asthma, you're fine. But if you, if you panic or anxiety, you're better off not doing the MBT because the air hunger could be too stressful. So to measure the MBT, you take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and walk at a normal pace. And you count the number of paces that you can hold your breath for. And you're holding your breath to a maximum. And at the end, you let go, but you breathe in through your nose and get your breathing under control. And normally for an athlete, we would expect them to be able to hold their breath for 60 paces plus. Ideally, 80 to 100 paces. But 60 paces plus would correlate with a bold score of about 20 to 25 seconds. So in terms of if you have somebody with a bold score of 10 seconds, their typical MBT is about 20 to 40 paces. If the bold score is 20 seconds, the MBT is 40 to, six, 40 to 60 paces. Yeah, from, from 20 to 30 seconds, control pause or, or bold, the MBT then is 60 to 80 paces. So there's some correlation there, but it's not always perfect, but it's, it's some indicator. And again, in OA, uh, you teach uh, athletes to use these two simple diagnostic tests in tandem to, to really track their, their, their progress um, over time. Again, it's, it's very powerful. Um, let's talk about the third and last protocol uh, for, for, for today. And this is my favorite. Let me see if I get this right. It's IHHT, which is mm. intermittent hypoxic hypercapnic training. Did, yes. did, did I get that right? You did. And, and yeah. you, use, you use a wonderful phrase in your book, The Oxygen Advantage, bringing, bringing the mountain, bringing the mountain mm. to you. And as a high altitude trekker myself and as a runner, uh, myself, I, I just, when I read that in your book, I just fell in love with that phrase, bringing the mountain to you. So how can those of us who train at sea level use IHHT to, as you suggest, bring the mountain to us? How does, how does IHHT yeah, work? Yeah, so it's, it's intermittent hypoxic hypercapnic training. If you think of a, an individual going up into the mountain, at higher altitudes, the atmospheric pressure is reduced. <clears throat> the concentration of oxygen is still 21%, but it's 21% of a lesser pressure. And as a result, blood oxygen saturation is dropping. And normal blood oxygen saturation is between 95 to 99%. That's at sea level for a healthy individual. Our whole purpose with doing the breath hold exercises are, is to lower the blood oxygen saturation. Now, when we take a normal breath in and out and we pinch our nose and we start walking and then go into a jog and into a fast jog and into a run, we are not just dropping blood oxygen saturation, but we're also increasing carbon dioxide. So on one hand, we're lowering blood oxygen saturation because we have stopped breathing. But during that time, the cells have continued to extract oxygen from the blood, but we haven't replenished it. And as a result, the hydrogen ion coming from the, the muscle doesn't get oxidized. 
to form water. And that in, ter in turn is going to associate with pyruvic acid to form lactic acid. Lactic acid then is going to dissociate into lactate and hydrogen ion. Now at the same time, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood and that's forming carbonic acid and then dissociating into hydrogen ion and bicarbonate. So you've got an increased hydrogen ion from the increased carbon dioxide and you've got an increased hydrogen ion from the hypoxic effect. So that's a combined acidosis. And the purpose of that then is, it's not sure exactly where it's happening, but it's taught that it's increasing the buffering inside in the muscle compartment. And by increasing, so there's different buffers inside in the muscles, phosphates, um, bicarbonate, and I can't think of the third one, but by increasing phosphates bicarbonate, it'll come to me probably afterwards this, <laughs> but by increasing the buffering capacity, it's able to delay lactic acid and fatigue. Now, I suppose in terms of, there's another aspect too, that when we do a breath hold above 30 seconds, the spleen, which is our blood bank, which is located underneath the left side of the diaphragm, that releases red blood cells into circulation. And that happens very, very quickly. And if we do five maximum breath holds, it is maximum spleen contraction. So you can imagine that before a game, we have players do their warm up. We have them do slow breathing to help steady any nerves, you know, to bring them into the present moment. But then we don't want them going out too relaxed. So then we stress them. We stress them with a couple of easy, couple of easy breath holds. And then we do five maximum breath holds to increase blood flow to the brain, to open up the nose, to open up the airways, but also to get the spleen to contract. And five breath holds before a game, depending on what, what papers you read, but it can take anything between 10 and 60 minutes for the spleen to reabsorb that blood back. And... The benefit here is because this is improving oxygen carrying capacity and this is going to allow the athlete to stay aerobically for longer and again a very simple thing that can be done and if an athlete then is doing that in regular training that in turn then with the kidneys go hypoxic and the liver to a lesser extent it synthesized a hormone erythropoietin and this in turn then is causing maturation of the red blood cells now, there are some non-responders with this, but we don't always see hemoglobin and hematocrit increase. But with some people, we do. But this is the same when athletes go up into altitude. There are some non-responders. <clears throat> and I suppose the other thing is that we're not just doing the breath holding for the aerobic effect. I think the best thing that we're doing the breath holding is for delaying lactic acid and fatigue. So, yeah. Like, and the other point that I'd like to make is a lot of athletes are doing anaerobic shuttle tests. They're sprinting to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis. And if you put a pulse oximeter onto an athlete when they're sprinting with the mouth open, their blood oxygen saturation drops down to about 93%. And if they sprint with their mouth closed, their blood oxygen saturation will drop down to about 90, 91%. But if you did a breath hold with a jog, you can drop the blood oxygen saturation <clears throat> down into the 80s. So you can drop it into severe hypoxia. So here, you know, in terms of stimulating anaerobic glycolysis, it doesn't make sense for an athlete to be pushing themselves with sprints, which is traumatic and which increases the risk of injury. Instead, they should be doing some sprints but doing jogging with breath holds to get that effect. 
And it's a stronger effect. Yes, and, and just to share, you know, personally, for about two months now, I, I've been on my three or four morning runs per week, throwing in eight to ten IHHT moments. So I'll, to, just to describe it for those tuned in, I'll be running along. I might do sort of a fart lick for, you know, sort of 60 paces, get up my speed a little bit, settle down, and then uh, slow exhale through the nose, and then hold and try and run. I've, I've, I've gotten up to about 25 paces um, before I breathe in through the nose in a controlled way and doing that eight to 10 times. And I have to tell you, Patrick, um, my Bolt score and my MBT score have both dramatically risen over two months. And, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fit. I'm, I'm not, you know, Superman. But I, I got to tell you, it's, um, it's been really powerful to witness that. And, and you know, I've been a runner most of my life, and I, I never understood any of this breath physiology until I started uh, getting into it with um, OA a few years ago. So, so I guess that's all by way of saying thank you. Um, <laughs> you mentioned um, you mentioned erythro poet and bef- poet and before, yes. um, and you said that's a hormone that's manufactured in the spleen. It's in the, it's, so it comes from the kidneys and the, the liver to a lesser extent. Okay. Um, so by doing breath holding. You know, I suppose the human body is very intelligent. And if we were to climb a mountain, that the body is sensing that there's a drop in oxygen. And the body is going to to adopt to make sure that there's sufficient oxygen to stay alive. Yeah. So it does that quickly with spleen contraction. Ah. And the, the blood in the spleen, 8% of the red blood cells are contained in the spleen and the quality of blood there is very high it's 80 percent is hematocrit now to give an example the normal hematocrit for a female is between 36 to 44 percent and for a male it's between 40 and 50 percent but in the spleen it's 80 percent and if we do a breath hold the spleen is releasing this red blood cells into circulation so it's just one of those things about the human body and it's a very normal thing to do the diving response because you know, even if you went to a local swimming pool and you were to look at young kids in their swimming, like I seen it with my own daughter. She's, you know, even when she was five or six, throwing a diving stick into the pool. And the whole fun was to go down and get the diving stick and to come back up for air. And these kids would be bursting for breath. And I was just thinking to myself when I was writing the book, this is going back a few years ago, what a normal and natural thing to do. Our ancestors did it. Kids love holding their breath. They'll hold their breath with little competitions. We did it as kids. And for human beings in as adults, we, we tend to stop doing that. But I suppose we were getting our food in the sea, you know, throughout our evolution. And that involved holding the breath on the way down. Yes, we do an exhale hold. Instead of if you were swimming, you breathe in and you, you hold. And we don't do any hyperventilation ever before we go into the water because it would be totally dangerous. Um, we don't recommend breath holding either in the water. We do everything on land. Um, but the exhale hold is stronger than the inhale hold. And there was a famous swimming coach from the United States called James Councilman back in the 80s. And he coined the phrase kind of hypoxic training. With his swimmers, he would have them do breath holding. And he, he was really on the right track. Um, his method involved breathing in and holding the breath. But if you breathe in, you're taking a lot of air into your lungs and you've got all of that oxygen in your lungs that needs to be used up before your blood oxygen saturation drops. But if you breathe in 
and out to functional residual capacity, just a normal breath in and normal breath out through your nose, it's a lot easier to get a stronger effect in terms of a hypoxic effect. And can, can you, have you tried that with swimmers? We've tried it with many, many athletes on land. Oh, okay. And the whole purpose is, so when we work to improve the bolt score and then we work to move, we increase the maximum breathlessness test, with the swimmers then, in swimming, we're getting the swimmers to, instead of taking a breath every three strokes, exactly to take, take a breath every five yes. strokes or even every seven strokes. Yeah. And that in turn is improving performance because I suppose if they can cover a distance with as little breath as possible, they're not losing propulsion when they have to turn their head sideways to take air into the body. Yes, and, and I have to say too, as a, I do a bit of long distance swimming myself, and again, after reading Oxygen Advantage a few years ago, for the first time, I started swimming in that way. So instead of typically mm -hmm. it's three or four strokes and I like to breathe on either side, I'd pushed it to five before breathing, then I pushed it to seven, and it felt great. It felt really, yes. really good. It was a little hard at first, kind of, you know, making this shift to nose breathing is similar, but yeah. again, sort of a game changer. Um, it's very powerful. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, this stuff is new, Rob, because like going back in terms of flow states, there was a paper written by Travis and Dulliard going mm -hmm. back to 1996 and looked at athletes who switched to nasal breathing during physical exercise and measured their brain waves. And they were more likely to enter. Um, they were more likely to enter flow state. So I think the information has always been out there, but it's just bringing it together. And it's looking at performance in terms of the breadth across a number of different dimensions. Everyday breathing is very important. I see many top athletes. And when you look at their breathing during rest, they're breathing faster up their chest breathing. And you're saying to yourself, how on earth did these guys get to where they're at? Because their breathing has been holding them back. And we improve their everyday breathing patterns. And then we have to, then we bring that everyday breathing functional pattern into physical exercise. And then we do the stressor exercises. And with Oxygen Advantage, we have brought in hyperventilation exercises because they are the rage now. And I suppose I got fed up with people asking questions. What's the difference between the Wim Hof technique and the Oxygen Advantage? So, yeah, you know, people like doing the hyperventilation techniques. And I would say there's a couple of things to bear in mind. What we've seen over the years, if people have a low bolt score of less than 25 seconds, when they do hyperventilation, and breath holding, it seems to increase their sensitivity to carbon dioxide. And that's not what you want. It seems to be more suitable, the stressor exercises to people with a higher boat score. So what I would say to people, and the other thing is, if you're hyperventilating and breath holding and hyperventilating and breath holding, just bear in mind that your blood oxygen saturation there can go into the 40s. The human brain has never experienced throughout our evolution such a low drop to blood oxygen saturation and we do, does anybody know what's happening there you know and we would never like my whole thing with oxygen advantages get people down into the 80s because that that's already severe hypoxia and there's enough of a training load there and it's a fair stressor mm. and if you go into the 70s you start feeling a little bit disoriented and sometimes it happens yeah we go down to the 70s but we don't want to go down to the 60s because now there's a risk of passing out. And at the 50s, the same. Yeah. So, you know, there's a point at which a good stress becomes a bad stress. 
And we do want to stress the body because that's how the body makes adaptations. But if you're stressing the body, it's always very important to recover afterwards. So one of the exercises that we do in terms of stressing the body is we have 20 full breaths in and out through the nose. A full breath in through the nose, full breath out, a full breath in, a full breath out. We do that for 20 breaths and then we do an exhale hold until the first involuntary movement of the diaphragm so that we're not lowering the blood oxygen saturation to extreme. But after that, then we do breathe light for three minutes. So we help to normalize blood pH. And I think that's better because we're, we're stressing the body and we're relaxing the body. And it's almost that we're shaking the autonomic nervous system and we can get some adaptations that way. You anticipated my question earlier. Um, thank you for that, because I, I did want to ask you um, uh, comparatively about the Wim Hof method, which I also practice versus OA, and, and I find them complementary. But I appreciate what you're saying, and I, I think it is important to, as we push ourselves through breathing, to, to be thoughtful and, and respectful of uh, every, everyone's unique bodies and minds yes. there. And just to clarify, um, when you're talking about 80, 70%, you're talking about with a pulse oximeter measuring the amount of oxygen saturation in the blood, just to be clear. Yes, for, for yes. Our, so it's our, the SpO2, yeah. right. which will give you a good approximation of the SaO2. And basically that is 98% of oxygen in the blood is carried bound by hemoglobin. Right. And when you have a pulse oximeter, there's a little red light. So it's able to pick up an infrared light as well. It's able to pick up if hemoglobin is carrying oxygen. And... Yeah, so it, the risk is always when you go below 60%. And you're right with breathing. Like I've made plenty of mistakes with breathing. And I've made plenty of mistakes with people with anxiety and panic disorder, putting them into full-blown panic attacks. You know, and then it really, you know, when you make a few mistakes like that, then you just realize that it's very important to be tailored breathing exercise. Now, for the vast majority of people, they're, they're fine doing breathing exercise. But there is a cohort of people that we have to be careful with. And certainly breathing exercises are not suitable for, for everybody in terms of, you know, I, if somebody comes into me with high anxiety, I don't do strong breath holds with them. I want to improve their everyday functional breathing. If somebody is coming into me with high blood pressure, again, I want to do slow breathing, light breathing and nose breathing. And I also want to look at their sleep because possibly it's their sleep apnea or whatever that's driving up blood pressure. So it is, I suppose, tailoring breathing exercises. And the other thing is women's breathing is very different to men's breathing. And this has been written about since 1905. And despite this, most of the research on breathing has been done by men. And even when research is done on women, they fail to take into consideration the monthly cycle. Now, this is a huge impact in terms of performance and general health and well-being. So, for example, during the monthly cycle between days 10 and days 22, so the middle luteal phase, it's post-ovulation. And there's an increase in progesterone and estrogen. And progesterone is a respiratory stimulant. So breathing is going to become faster and harder. And carbon dioxide levels can drop by 25%. And with this, the pain perception can increase and pain thresholds can lower. So mm -hmm. the female can be more prone to pain. For example, the symptoms of fibromyalgia but also more prone to fatigue and anxiety and panic. So that doesn't take, you know, we really need to be thinking about females in terms of they should be tracking their breathing across the monthly cycle. And if they already have poor breathing patterns, then they're coming into the luteal phase and their breathing is dipping even more. I think it's really important that 
they start practicing breathing techniques to help to help counter the breathing changes due to hormonal changes. And then for the other, if post-menopause, sleep disorder breathing increases by 300% in the female population. And we have, you know, females sending in that once they get their mouth closed during sleep and they start practicing breathing exercises, they have reported less hot flashes and no studies on this. So this is only an anecdotal observation, but there's no side effects from encouraging people to breathe through their nose. And we have to bear in mind that slow breathing and the science of heart rate variability and stimulating the vagus nerve over, over the last 30 years, it's not just about slow breathing, but breathing light can also stimulate the vagus nerve. Nose breathing during sleep improves heart rate variability. Breathing with greater amplitude of the diaphragm stimulates the vagus nerve and breathing slow to a cadence of 4.5 to 6.5 breaths per minute stimulates the vagus nerve. So where the science is at is really looking at heart rate variability in terms of a balance of the autonomic nervous system and people who are not well, either emotionally or physically, their HRV can be, can be low, low coherence. And, you know, bearing that in mind that I think the breath is one of those things that we can influence all of the major disciplines of medicine. We're not curing anything. I know that the name of my book is, it includes the word cure. That was at my publisher. That was my publisher. But, you know, it, it, but I think in terms of we can have such a huge impact on people's health though. And I've seen wonderful results over the years with it. Yeah. So again, you're anticipating my last question for you. So here we are, Patrick, in the COVID times. Mm. And, you know, I've been following events in Ireland a bit. I've got a few friends over there. I know it's been challenging as it has been here in the United States. Uh, what, what advice would you have for Team Human um, in the midst of COVID times, given everything that you've learned about uh, breathing with Buteco and Oxygen Advantage? What, if you could boil it down to a couple of strategic suggestions for us, what would those be? Well, I think number one is nose breathing. And I know that nose breathing alone may not stop COVID, but we have to bear in mind that there's a gas that's naturally released into the nasal cavity, which is antiviral. And that's, that's nitric oxide. And also nose breathing, we're gonna take less air into the body. So if, for example, there is airborne particles there, and if you're having them out open, you literally have little defense. You have no defense in terms of the first line of defense is the nose, not the mouth. The second thing is, there was an article that I wrote, or not I wrote, or read, published fairly recently, looking at reports coming from Mount Sinai. And these are patients with long COVID. So patients who have a really long recovery. And I can send you on the article. Please. But they found that the carbon dioxide levels were low in all of the patients, low CO2. And when they implemented a breathing treatment program that it helped to improve the symptoms of the patients. So I think the, the realization is that anytime that we have respiratory distress, we feel air hunger, we feel suffocated. Our breathing rate is getting faster. The, the, there's a resistance to breathing. And we respond by breathing shallow and fast in an effort of alleviating the feeling of air hunger. But it's the most inefficient and uneconomical way to breathe. And it just feeds into the feeling of suffocation. If we want to improve alveolar ventilation, 
and that's by getting the air down into the small air sacs in the lungs. One way would be having your mouth closed and having your hands either side of the lower ribs and slowing down the respiratory rate. Now you understand if people have a low breath all time and their breathing is faster, it can be difficult slowing down your breathing. But even slow down your breathing upon what you are already doing. So if you're breathing faster, just breathe a little bit slower. Mm. And every time that you can breathe slower, you're reducing the respiratory rate per minute. So you're reducing the air that's lost to dead space and you're increasing alveolar ventilation. But also, how can you help to bring your breathing under control? Anytime that you've got symptoms, do breath holds, small breath holds. So breathe in through your nose, breathe out, pinch your nose and hold. Five, four, three, two, one, let go. And I put a video out on YouTube back in March of 2020. And this is when COVID was just kind of, I suppose we never realized that it was going to be here one year later plus. Um, but it's had eight, 800,000 views and it was breathing exercise. So I put, it was for, well, it was kind of a podcast that I was doing and I kept on talking. So it was 45 minutes. I, I was one of those viewers. <laughs> Are you? Yeah, okay. yeah. I remember that wow. video. Yeah. And the lighting was poor and everything was poor and we put it up on YouTube, but there's about one and a half thousand to 2000 comments. And the comments will be from some people who use the breathing exercise to help recovery post COVID. And I'm in touch with some medical doctors as well, that they are finding a difference when they're getting their patients to breathe through the nose and slow down breathing and to get breathing under control. Yes, and to be clear, when you say Mount Sinai, I assume you're meaning the medical center in New York City. Is that yes. right? Yeah. Yes. As correct. opposed to the mountain in in in, in Israel. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah, that's yeah. okay. It was but the medical center. But yes. yes, if you could send send on that article to me, it's funny you reference that Mount Sinai article. I just heard your esteemed colleague uh, James Nestor, of course, author of Breath, uh, mm. I think referenced the same uh, paper in a in a in a podcast he was on with Lewis. Um, just a week or two ago, and, and I flagged it, but I haven't had a chance to look for it yet. So yeah, I said, and I think it's published in a journal or not a journal. It's a magazine, I assume, online but, magazine. Yeah. The Atlantic. Well, and imagine if if the so-called you know COVID long haul phenomenon yes. could be even partially addressed by simple, powerful changes in our daily breathing protocols. That would be again a game changer. So I, I'm I'm curious yes. to to see but where that goes. Like, in very simple, I was talking with a number, a doc, well, just two doctors, three medical doctors, and they're based in the UK, afternoon tea with docs, and they run these podcasts, and I was talking on it, and um, one is an emergency physician, and she explained that they were in, in theatre, and one of the patients was hyperventilating, and blood pH was increasing, and carbon dioxide was dropping, and oxygen was increasing. And her team, the, in, there was kind of some pressure to intubate this patient to help to stabilize her. And she said to her team, give me a few minutes with the patient and I'll see if I can stabilize her true breathing. And she started getting the patient to slow down the breath, breathing through the nose and to reduce breathing volume, buteco method. And she normalized blood pH, took her out of respiratory alkalosis and sent on the, the written, you know, the reports that come from the, the equipment that's in, in surgery. And you can see it happening. And here was something so simple. And this person avoided being intubated 
whereas a simple breathing technique could do. You know, so I suppose the reason that it hasn't got out there so much is because there has been a little bit of resistance. And it's really time, I think, for people in the healthcare industry is to start investigating this. And that's all we want. And one of the most frustrating things for me, Rob, was a kid growing up with asthma. And then back in 2002 and 2003 and four and five, I was contacting um, asthma associations and they didn't really want to know anything about it. And I felt very disheartened. And I felt that what is the purpose of the, the association? They have loads of members. They're not telling their members to breathe through the nose. You know, and it's not like we don't make in terms of breathing therapy. This is not about making lots of money because you don't. But it's about simple advice, giving people the tools to help themselves. But yet there was an unwillingness. So I often felt what's going on, that we don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. Well, thank thank God you're here, Patrick. <laughs> Can you um, uh, just hold up uh, the new book just so we take a look at that? Sure. Um, and we don't let let's do a let's do a, a show um, uh, in a couple of months when it comes out. But can you say a few words about the breathing cure? This and, and this has yeah. been published or not quite yet? Or it's published in the UK and Ireland. Well, so we, we got to get it to we, the states. <laughs> yeah, no, we have publishers. So Human X Books have taken it on and it will be available from July of, of this year. It's a book that is looking at. So what I did was I was able to expand it through the oxygen advantage and expand on different breathing exercises. So there's 26 different breathing exercises. And I brought in topics that typically we haven't really spoke about. Of course, the normal ones we are in it. Um, functional breathing, functional movement, we touched upon it, sleep disorder breathing, asthma, but I also brought in epilepsy um, because I think it's really, really important with idiopathic epilepsy and also with some forms of epilepsy that to give people with epilepsy some more control over their, their condition. And it's been shown that, for example, people having seizures, that one was called the exchange breathing method when the first aider came and breathed air from his mouth or her mouth into the nostril of the victim. It was able to take the person out of the shortened duration. Other techniques to increase blood flow to the brain for epilepsy. Um, I spoke about the impact of hyperventilation, how it's increasing, increasing the signals between the, the neurons. And it's also lowering the excitability threshold of neurons. And I put in a chapter then on diabetes, type one and type two, and the impact that breathing can have on that in terms of improving sleep, but also improving the bar reflex and increasing heart rate variability and getting a better balance in the autonomic nervous system. And like, it's very important as well, because again, it's not being addressed so much with people with diabetes. I put in, there's a chapter in on sex and I'm no expert on this whatsoever, but I just put it in because it was topical and I just found it was kind of interesting because it kind of brings breathing into one of those functions that we as human beings have been doing anyway since day dot, even though most of us don't want to be talking about it. But in terms of there's an issue with men for with erectile dysfunction and, you know, libido, etc. And, you know, that's very, very important. And talking about men that breathing through the nose, they should be waking up with an erection every morning. And most men don't, they're not aware of it. And, 
you know, if, for example, a man is not waking up in an erection every morning, it could signify that something, something else is going on in terms of the cardiovascular system. And sleep disorder breathing does contribute to erectile dysfunction. And I put in, there's other, it's, it's a fairly big book, but I, I put the main chapter as number two, and that's about all the breathing exercise. And that gives a simple account then of the application of a, so chapter two is a hundred pages, but the book in total is about 560 pages. It's 190,000 words. So it's a big one, but you don't have to read the whole lot. So I wanted to try and bring in as much science. There is thousands of references there. And I just wanted to take breathing a little bit more into central to start getting people to think about it. Breathing isn't something that should be on the fringes of society. Mm. It's been too long there. Yeah. And we need to take it out of there. And that's why I wanted to show that support where I can with references, you know, because then at least people will think, well, you know, there's some credibility here. Well, I, uh, I look forward to reading it. And um, again, for folks just tuning in, uh, The Oxygen um, Advantage, uh, your previous book is a fantastic primer uh, on all of this Thanks. as well. Yeah. And again, the website is oxygenadvantage.com. Patrick McCormick, th thank you so much for all that you do for, for Team Human. And uh, um, let me do a, a quick sign off. You've been tuned in to Peak Flow, where we, Team Human, play with purpose. Special thanks to our guest all the way from Ireland today, Patrick McEwen, the author of Oxygen Advantage, uh, the founder of OxygenAdvantage.com, and forthcoming very soon in the United States, The Breathing Cure. Thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you outside.